Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season nine, episode two, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the 1993 sci-fi film Jurassic Park. It was written by David Kep and Michael Crichton based on Crichton's novel of the same name, and directed by Steven Spielberg. The film stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, Richard Attenborough, Samuel L. Jackson, Wayne Knight, Joseph Mazzello, and Ariana Richards. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, cool. Then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you please start us off with a small plot summary? Sure. A paleontologist, a paleobotanist, and a chaotician, so fancy, (laughs) 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 are asked to tour and hopefully endorse a new theme park centered around the long extinct dinosaurs. Upon their arrival, they discover that the billionaire who founded the park hired scientists who've discovered how to clone dinosaurs. Oh, excuse me, dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) They miraculously use frog DNA and dinosaur blood found in fossilized mosquitoes and alter the DNA so that all of the dinosaurs are born female. This is to ensure that there is no unauthorized breeding at the park. At first, the guest scientists are worried that chaos might ensue, but they are asked to tour the park with the billionaire's grandchildren in hopes they will change their minds when they see how much fun the kids will have seeing real dinosaurs. Unfortunately, the tour takes a turn for the worse when the power suddenly cuts out and the carnivorous Tyrannosaurus Rex and Velociraptors escape their cages. Dun, dun, dun! Yes! Also, y'all, I'm so sorry that this movie is no longer on Netflix because I thought we should cover this movie because it's available for almost everyone to see. (laughs) And now they fucking took it off of Netflix. Yeah, thanks a lot, Netflix, you turds. You start with The Office. Yeah, well, guess what? It's on, guess what what streaming service it's on? What? It's on Peacock. (laughs) Which is where The Office is now, too. Well, I know what I'm doing later, I guess. What? Getting rid of Netflix. Oh, and and getting Peacock instead? Yeah. What the heck even? Oh, I was so mad. I text Abby and I was like, I was so upset. Anyway, I hope you all have it on DVD or you watched it this summer because it's a great film. Let's get into the production. So uh, science fiction writer and physician Michael Crichton wrote the 1999 
1990 novel, Jurassic Park, after toying around with a screenplay he had written years before about a graduate student who brings a dinosaur back to life. At this time, Crichton was not new to writing theme park disaster stories. Y'all know the HBO series Westworld? Well, that's based on a screenplay and film from the 1970s that was written and directed by Crichton. What? I didn't mm-hmm. know that. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. So according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, before its publication, Steven Spielberg learned of the novel in October of 1989, while he was discussing a screenplay with Crichton that would become the television series E.R., Wow. Yeah. Oh my god, I had no idea he had his hand in so many things. Well, that's the other interesting little tidbit. Like, the long-running drama series ER was created by Crichton and Spielberg. Like, what? Even? Oh my god. So Spielberg recognized what really fascinated him about Jurassic Park was that it was a, quote, a really credible look at how dinosaurs might someday be brought back alongside modern mankind, going beyond a simple monster movie. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, Spielberg wanted another writer to re- to rework the script. So Universal President Casey Silver recommended David Kep, co-writer of Death Becomes Her. According to Joseph McBride, quote, after completing Hook, Spielberg wanted to film Schindler's List. Sid Scheinberg, president of Music Corporation of America, Universal Pictures' parent company at the time, gave the green light to Schindler's List on the condition Spielberg make Jurassic Park first. He said later by choosing a creature-driven thriller, quote, I was really just trying to make a good sequel to Jaws on land, unquote. (laughs) And Spielberg ended up making both films sort of at the same time. So instead of making Jurassic Park first and then Schindler's List, he really wanted to make Schindler's List. So he just sort of made both at the same time. Like, it was really, I don't know how he did it. (laughs) He's like the king of taking on too many projects. (laughs) Isn't that so true, though? I feel like when I watched the... I watched the, what was it called? Uh, the do- documentary about Jaws. Oh, my God. Oh, and he yeah. just, like, felt like he was going to throw up every night and stuff because he was just so, like, nervous that the film was going to fail. And he was doing so much to make it work. And I was like, Spielberg has grit. Yeah, he does. Okay. According to Sonia Epstein, Spielberg brought an acclaimed special effects artist, Stan Winston, to create the animatronic dinosaurs. And you might know Stan Winston from uh, the Aliens, the second Alien movie. And he created the Xenomorph Queen. Ooh, cool. Uh, According to Epstein, Spielberg hired paleontologist Jack Horner, who supervised the designs and helped fulfill Spielberg's desire to portray the dinosaurs as animals rather than monsters. And real quick, fun little facts about casting. We almost didn't get Jeff Goldblum in the film as Ian Malcolm. Jim Carrey was almost cast in the role as the snarky chaotician. No! I know. Oh. I'm really glad that he wasn't cast because it would have been a completely different character. It would have. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like the whole movie would have changed. <laughs> oh, it would have. For sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, we saw Jim Carrey in um, ba- The Bad Batch. And oh, yeah. he was like a completely different person. Like he actually he was probably the best part of that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I feel like 90s Jim Carrey it would have been weird. 
he wasn't ready he wasn't ready he wasn't ready, wasn't ready. Jurassic <laughs> he wasn't ready or maybe we weren't ready <laughs> yeah true true so Jurassic Park's exterior shots were filmed in Hawaii on the island of Kauai, and the majority of the indoor shooting, most notably the scenes with the raptors, were filmed on sound stages in California. According to the film's Blu-ray docuseries Jurassic Park Making Prehistory, given the kitchen set was filled with reflective surfaces, cinematographer Dean Cundy, who did Halloween... Oh, cool. Yeah, had to carefully plan the illumination while also using black cloth to hide the light reflections. Oh my god, I can't even imagine how stressful those scenes must have been. (laughs) Yes. There's like a slight light leak somewhere and you're like, god damn it! (laughs) You have to do the whole scene all over again. Yeah. Goodness. Okay, so according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the film premiered at the Uptown... Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C. on June 9th, 1993, in support of two children's charities. Two days later, it opened nationwide in over 2,000 theater locations. Following the film's release, a traveling exhibition called The Dinosaurs of Jurassic Park began, showcasing dinosaur skeletons and film props. With a budget of $64 million, the film was a massive success and grossed over $1 billion at the box office. So it did pretty well. The majority of critics liked the film at the time of its release, but felt that if it hadn't been for the great special effects, which still hold up in my opinion, the film would be mostly schlock. Uh, But hey, what's wrong with schlock? Nothing. Yeah, what the heck? (laughs) According to Roger Ebert, the movie delivers all too well on its promise to show us dinosaurs. We see them early and often. And they are indeed a triumph of special effects artistry, but the movie is lacking other qualities that it needs even more, such as a sense of awe and wonderment and strong human story values, unquote. I don't agree. What the hell even? This a is sense why of I awe and wonderment? I know. This is why I don't ever trust critics. See the well, movie for yourself. <laughs> I really like, man, Ebert, I know he was a very successful critic, but I just can't get behind any of his reviews like hardly any of them me neither so jurassic park ended up winning three academy awards in 1994 best sound editing best sound mixing and best visual effects although it's not seen as a horror film to most more so a sci-fi action film there's no denying the underlying horror that is clearly in jurassic park i mean what's scarier than going to a theme park and having the attractions try to eat you Not much. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. According to film critic Ollie Richards, quote, the effects have barely aged and the joy is timeless. Take a child who's never seen it and watch their imagination expand before your eyes, unquote. And according to Fico Cangiano, quote, almost 30 years since it was released, Jurassic Park remains one of the quintessential blockbuster films of all time. One of Steven Spielberg's best movies gives us the perfect mix of wonder and terror. Unquote. So let's get into the Bechdel test. Um, I don't think it passes, to be honest. Ellie and Lex interact with each other, but they don't actually have like a solid conversation. Mm-hmm. And they are the only two female characters in the film. So I'm going to say no, it doesn't pass. Dang it. Uh... Mm-hmm. And then the other women, the dinosaurs don't speak English. So, you know. yeah that's true (laughs) sucks i don't know what they're saying i wish Um, i did (laughs) i wish i did (laughs) uh let's take a look at nancy's dream team test was the supporting cast at least 50 percent women 
If you count the dinosaurs, then yes, but I'm not going to, so no. (laughs) Did a woman write, direct, produce, or edit the film? Yes, the film was produced by Kathleen Kennedy. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. In fact, the only people of color in this film is killed. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? If you want to count the dinosaurs, then yes. But none of the humans are. (laughs) Dang it. Yeah. So let's get into our discussion, which I'm going to all warn you is mostly about how Jurassic Park handles the theme of gender. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, if you're here for any other reason, (laughs) we have a small section about capitalism. (laughs) But that's it. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) You gotta. Yeah, it's true. I really wanted to talk about, like, the chaos theory in this. In fact, Luke asked me, he's like, are you guys talking about chaos theory and how it relates to the movie? And I was like, no, we don't have time. (laughs) Oh, my God, seriously. Also, chaos theory is, it's so much for me. (laughs) Every time I try to learn about it, I'm like, (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I'm, I just don't care enough for it. Sorry, guys. Sorry if you were really looking forward to that. So let's actually start with how the men are represented in Jurassic Park. Let's start with Alan, who's the maternal hero. Yeah, we cannot ignore the fact that so-called gender roles are completely reversed in this film. Like, I think that representation was important because it would have been really easy to pass off the responsibility of the kids to Ellie. But as a result of disastrous circumstances, Alan actually takes on the role of caretaker while Ellie is solving like the technical problems that the group faces. And they're both problem solvers, obviously, as scientists, you kind of have to be. But Alan goes on a very personal journey, I think, as he learns how to take care of the kids and himself Mm -hmm. and providing a shoulder to cry on and the sensitivity that they all need to make it out of the park alive. It stands out even now among films because we're used to seeing male characters take on like that kind of warrior type role when they're like protecting their family and that kind of thing. But Alan seems a lot more domestic, but it it doesn't affect his masculinity at all. At least I don't think. No. He isn't the aloof father figure either, like we see in a lot of horror movies. And like what comes to mind is like the dad in the newest Halloween movie, how he's kind of like, he's kind of a doofus and like jokes around a lot, doesn't really like help solve any problems. Yeah. But, you see that in commercials, too. You see that yeah. in commercials, too, where dads uh, are are just like, yeah, like doofuses. Like, they don't know what they're <laughs> doing, and they can't solve these basic domestic problems that the wife has to sweep in and, and solve. And, yeah. And that's not what happens here. No. He discovers within himself the power to care for others. And the great part is that he respects the kids and the way that they feel. That was, like, uh, something huge for me, especially the last time I was watching this, because I was, like, I haven't really paid too much attention to Alan in the past, just because, like, for me, this movie is all about, like, oh, yes, women scientists. But I was, like, holy crap, like, he's so reassuring to the kids, and he's, like, 
he just like keeps calm and he like does what he has to do and i'm like dang man like that's so cool that we need more of that in films i think from men anyway you know what's i love about him is that he he sort of already has this this sensitive side to him anyway like he's very much uh appreciative of ellie he like respects her mm-hmm. and uh i'm gonna kind of get into more of this later but i mean when jeff goldblum's character when ian says you know she's tenacious he goes you have no idea yeah you know like he knows everything that ellie is capable of and looks at her i think as an equal mm-hmm. definitely ian, ian malcolm doesn't he looks at her as you know somebody he can flirt with and whatever and like I said, I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, but I think Alan already sort of had this sensitivity that he just had to maybe come in touch with when it came to kids. He didn't yeah. realize that he was good with kids already. You know, he just had to not hate them so much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about gender roles, right, in the use of color later in the episode, but I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that he himself discovers his more maternal side rather than like Ellie or anyone else really forcing him to discover it. Like she tries to force him to discover it when she's like, sit with the kids, sit with the kids. Mm-hmm. And he just, he does, he has um, ends up not doing it. The kids get stuck with the lawyer. <laughs> oh, those poor kids. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, for real. But um, I think that that's interesting that like, like with all these situations that are really, Ellie is like trying to push him, push him and he doesn't, he doesn't go for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And um. I want to compare, like, this discovery uh, with protecting the kids and how, like, he might, he has more of a maternal side. Um, he kind of has to have that maternal side come out because he needs to be that way in order for them all to survive. Yeah. And if you compare this to him interacting with the snotty kid at the dig site, he <laughs> does the opposite. Instead of protecting that kid and keeping him from being scared, he actually scares him. <laughs> so he does the opposite. And uh, I say, like, maternal rather than paternal with Alan because I feel like in nature, as well as in film, the fatherly figure always sacrifices themselves for the kids and and the mothers. Like, the movie, if y'all haven't seen it, you probably should have by now, A Quiet Place. (laughs) Like, the dad sacrifices himself for his family. Yeah. And like you said earlier, like this whole like dads usually take on this like warrior role where like mm-hmm. they're the sacrificial father, this the sacrificial warrior so that the mother and the children can be safe and live on. But Alan doesn't have a moment like that. He stays alive for the kids. And if anyone actually does this sacrificial father thing, it's Ian Malcolm. Yeah. And um Ian is the rock star scientist of the group. He's smart, he's cool, he's sensual, and he's also an absent father. He tells Alan in the car that he has three kids and he loves them, but anything can and will happen. He also mentions that he's married occasionally, insinuating that his multiple children have different mothers. <laughs> and we see in this yeah, and we see in the sequel in the Lost World Jurassic Park that Ian is absent from his daughter Kelly's life. So much so so much so that he doesn't know some of the most important things going on in her life, like how she quit the gymnastics team. Or she didn't quit, she got kicked off the team. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know it. Um, he's also resentful of Kelly's mom, who quote-unquote dumped her off with him and ran off to Paris. But that's the lost world. Let's jump back to Jurassic Park. A 
According to the essay Clever Girl, a feminist interpretation of Jurassic Park, quote, Ian Malcolm is the experienced older brother to Grant's almost virginal innocence. Grant is touchy and uncertain, while Malcolm is politely encouraging Grant to think responsibly about the children. When the T-Rex arrives, Grant's instinct is to get involved and draw the dinosaur off with a flare, and it seems that Malcolm is only following him. But the dialogue again tells a slightly different story. Grant says, Ian, freeze, get rid of the flare. And Malcolm says, get the kids. Grant says, get rid of the flare. And Malcolm says, get the kids. <laughs> so I always love that scene because yeah. we kind of see how much Ian actually cares about these children, even though he's had no interaction with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as with animals, like on the island, Malcolm recognizes the danger not to himself or the fellow adults, but the children. Right. Despite being an entirely inappropriate, sexually promiscuous poser, Malcolm is the moral compass of the film. And Ian is attacked by the T-Rex. He sacrifices himself for the children so that Alan, who is the mother figure in this situation, can live on and protect them. Ian doesn't die, but he was ready to in order to protect Alan and the kids. Ooh, that's so interesting. So this happens in nature a lot, right? Where like... I saw there's this documentary on Disney Plus, uh, and it's about squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And like they show how the father squirrel like like fights with the predators, and so it gives the mother time to grab the babies and go to a different tree or run away, basically. Aww. And then usually the dad is killed. But that's like to me, like that's sort of what happens here. It's like. Ian is the father, the sacrificial father, while Alan, who's also a man, is actually the mother, and he's there to protect the kids. And I just think that that dynamic is so interesting, because like you said, like, Ellie could have easily been in the Alan position, mm-hmm. but she wasn't. It was two men who were there protecting these children. Yeah, which is actually really cool, too, if you think about it, because I feel like men don't really get the opportunity to do that too much. In Mm-mm. film? They don't need they don't get to be together and work as a parental unit. Right. Yeah. So that's yeah. like super um ahead of its time, I think, for this yes. film. Yeah, absolutely. I wanna add this quote from the essay Clever Girl. Uh, the author talks about how Alan and Ian are thrown into these parental roles to save the kids, but it starts out because the lawyer, Gennaro, abandons them in the first place. Like Quote, Gennaro has run off the toilet, run off to the toilet, abandoning the children and an absconding father figure. And Lex is frightened by the memory, even when they are relatively safe. He left us. He left us. She cries to which Grant faces her looking deep into her eyes and firmly saying, but that's not what I'm going to do. Unquote. So, yeah, Gennaro is punished for his actions and he is killed while Ian, who is the sacrificial father, and Alan, the protective mother, are saved. And I want to add that we learn in the very beginning of the film, uh, a very brief conversation happens between the lawyer and one of the diggers. And we learn that Lex and Tim's mom and dad are getting divorced. Mm. And so their real father has left them. So when Gennaro leaves... I think that this is like a really interesting touch. Gennaro leaves and Lex is almost re-traumatized by this event. Oh. 
You know what? Yeah. You know what I just thought of, too? All of the dinosaurs in the park are females. So it's yeah. like kind of that hierarchy in nature, too. Like, mm. the female is like, oh, you're a weak male. <laughs> So I'm going to, like, get rid of you. This is going to be, like, natural selection. How the T-Rex kills Gennaro? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, that's so upsetting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It's it's a little bit wild. Yeah. Okay. With that said, let's talk about <laughs> John Hammond. Oh, God. According to the essay Clever Girl, John Hammond is Dr. Frankenstein, incestuously in love with his creations instead of terrified of them, insisting on playing father to each and every creature born on the island. He thinks being present at the birth will mean he imprints on them, based on no factual evidence but his own sordid imagination, unquote. <sighs> and I want to add, until the very end... John cannot let go of the park or the dinosaurs. He cannot let go of the illusion, no matter how much Ellie tries to bring him back to reality. He seems afraid for his grandkids, I guess, but he seems more concerned with the park and the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. There's one part where he asks if the kids are okay over the phone, and that's it. Yeah. And, yeah. and in my own little headcanon, I like to think that when he yells for Alan over the phone, just after that scene, he's like yelling at him because he doesn't want him to shoot the dinosaurs. Yeah. Not because that they are all in danger because he yells like, Grant, like answer the phone, you know. I think he's actually like in my head. I think he's yelling at him like, don't shoot the dinosaurs. Yeah. Don't kill them. I think he says don't like when he's yelling. I thought he said Grant. Like I thought he was yelling his name, Grant. I don't know. <laughs> Either way, I'd have, to, I, I'd have to watch it with subtitles, but yeah, like I can. I can either way, see I that. don't feel like he's scared for them. I think I feel like he's scared for the dinosaurs. Like, don't hurt them. Yes, same. Oh, yeah. gross. And when they're all in the helicopter, the kids are nestled next to Alan, not their own grandfather. Yes. And honestly, like John doesn't seem to care that his grandkids don't want to be near him. Yeah. Like he takes one last look at the park before they escape in the helicopter. And then when they are like, I don't feel like I ever remember him like hugging his grandkids. Maybe he does. But it's I don't really remember it, which means it probably doesn't happen or it's so quick. that yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And like that's like right before they get in the helicopter. And then when they're in the helicopter, he's not looking at his grandkids like Ellie is looking at Alan and the kids and stuff. He's looking at the fossilized bug in his cane. Gross. Which, like, represents, like, all of his hopes and dreams for this park. <sighs> and I also want to add that the essay kind of got something wrong. Because Frankenstein loved his monster until it came to life and killed his family. He was scared of the monster once it was born. Mm -hmm. uh, Hammond doesn't do that. He loves it. You know, the monster, the animals, the dinosaurs. He loves them from beginning to end. And he doesn't seem to care that people are dying. Yeah. And according to the essay, Clever Girl, quote, Nedry warns John the park is over-automated. Malcolm warns him that control is not possible. Grant and Sadler warn him the park is dangerous and unpredictable. But this is a man who describes his own grandchildren as his target audience. Yeah. 
Hammond has dollar signs in his eyes and is a perfect example of male entitlement. Hammond thinks that he's playing God, but the subtext hints he is more, he is a little more than a grubby pimp, manipulating and forcing female bodies to perform the way he wants them to. He wistfully describes his first attempt at making money from entertainment as his flea circus called Petticoat Lane, the name which, again, suggests a brothel. Ooh, so he's a lot more grimy than I even originally noticed. <laughs> you know, what? I it was so funny because like he seems like he's a good guy when you're a kid. When you watch the film, you seem like he's this guy who has these, these hopes and dreams and he seems like sort of like a Walt Disney. Like he's yes. a good guy. Yep. And we'll talk about capitalism later. But uh, yeah, as an adult, you watch this and you're like, wow, you are very irresponsible. <laughs> uh Yes. And the fact that he also only got one female scientist aboard, like, to come and look at the park, probably only because she's partnered with Grant. Like, I don't think he would have gotten the opinion of, like, any female personnel, if not for Alan. And, like, if you look at his staff at the park, I don't think there's any females involved either. I don't remember off the top of my head seeing any women working at that park. Yeah. I mean, even down at to least like... In the sci- at least in the scientists' right, positions. Right. Like down to like the little cartoon tour that they take. Mm. It's, it's all men. So it's all like this empire built by men that is like non-inclusive anyway. So... It's an empire built by men that shows off the bodies of women. Like, yeah. like the essay says. Because all the women are dinosaurs. And so it's just like, that's so interesting. Well, Mm. joke's on you, because now you're all going to get eaten. Yeah, basically. (laughs) And speaking of women and the dinosaurs, let's talk about Ellie, Lex, and the dinosaurs. How are women represented in Jurassic Park? Let's start with the dinos. Yes. So, the goal of the scientists in Jurassic Park was to make it impossible for the dinosaurs to reproduce, like we talked about earlier. However... Like Jeff Goldblum says in the movie, life uh, finds a way. So what might this tell us about the way the female species are perceived by years of patriarchal scientific study? It seems pretty fitting that asexual reproduction would be looked like completely overlooked by a team of male scientists. (laughs) Even though it is very prevalent in the animal kingdom and it's something that they should obviously know about as biologists and geneticists. But it could have something to do with how our culture has shaped and defined gender even when it comes to animal species. And obviously in particular here we're talking about the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. So in an article published by BBC... A study was presented about the roles of male and female animals when it came to mating and how it pertains to humans, because we're quick to make assumptions about how human gender roles, like men always being the funnier, more aggressive, more sexually active gender, like those beliefs kind of bleed into how we study the animal kingdom, because it's like that unconscious bias kind of that humans have and females are seen as less sexually active passive and less aggressive unless they're protecting their young but 
that's obviously not true. And author Joan Roughgarden says it best, and she says in this article for BBC, when talking about gender roles and mating practices, clearly it is true for some animals, but it's time to drop the more sweeping generalizations about male and female behavior. Joan Roughgarden, who was formerly, formerly known as Jonathan, began thinking about the evolution of gender at a gay pride march in San Francisco shortly before her gender transition. How, Roughgarden wondered, does biology account for such a huge population normally considered an unfortunate footnote in scientific theory? When scientific theory says something is wrong with so many people, perhaps the theory is wrong, not the people, she concluded. The result was her 2004 book, Evolution's Rainbow, which examined the multitudinous ways that sex is expressed in nature. It goes far beyond our black and white definitions of male and female. As a biologist, you think there may be a couple, maybe as many as a dozen, of cases that depart from heteronormative binary, she says. But when I got into it, I was astonished by just how much variation there is. Scientists generally assume that sex is determined by the presence or absence of certain chromosomes. In humans, it is the X and Y chromosomes. However, the relevant genes can still be expressed in different ways. The result is that, within any species, many individuals will show characteristics of two sexes. There are plenty of examples of hermaphrodite invertebrates. Leopard slugs are one of many. But Roughgarden has also found that intersex individuals are common among mammals, including red kangaroos, tamar wallabies, vanatu pigs, and America's black and brown bears. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, isn't that wild? That's great. <laughs> so, so, yeah, right? So, according to a 1988 study, between 10 to 20% of female bears have a penis-like structure in place of a vagina. What? Yep. An intersex female bear actually mates and gives birth through the tip of her penis, says Roughgarden. Oh, my God. Yeah. She says these are extreme cases, but many other animals cannot be classified simply as males and females, as if, as if members of each sex will look and act according to the same template. Oh. So, if you're really on the fence about how to feel about, like, people expressing their gender or sex or whatever, it's actually in nature constantly all around you. It's not just humans that are like this. It's animals, too. So funny that these scientists overlooked that. Correct. I mean, maybe for the story they yeah. had to. Yeah. But I'm just thinking, like, you, I feel like they wouldn't have, especially if this study was in 1988, the right. year I was born. <laughs> yes. And this movie came out in 1993. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Like, this was so something that was known. Yeah, if you're obviously, like, embroiled in your career and what you're doing as a biologist or a geneticist, this is something that, like, you should be keeping up on. I'm sure that, like, if we have any scientists listeners out there, you're obviously, like, reading new publications and new articles and new studies constantly, all the time, because science is changing all the time. And I feel like if you're making dinosaurs 
you should be aware of stuff like this happening. Well, especially if they use DNA from frogs, because like Alan says, like some frogs can like switch their sex so that they can mate. Yes. Like, what the heck even? You don't know what asexual reproduction is? Right. That's like basic day one shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I kind of want to, I'm not going quite off topic, but I kind of want to mention how I think it's really interesting that all of the dinos are misgendered in the film too. And like Alan, who is a good guy, and Nedry, let's say is... You know, he's a flawed individual. He's not necessarily a bad guy, you could argue. Uh, But they both misgender the dinosaurs in the film. According to the essay Clever Girl, quote, Grant's understanding of the factors at play here are confused. He knows the animals are meant to be female and yet repeatedly repeatedly refers to them as male. When the goat is left out for the T-Rex, he comments, the T-Rex doesn't want to be fed. He wants to hunt. Oh. Yeah. When the T-Rex first appears and Lex is screaming... Grant immediately puts his hand over her mouth, which has its own dubious undertones, and whispers, he can't see us if we don't move. Wow. However, yeah, however, the ill and incapacitated, the ill and incapacitated Triceratops is immediately female. She was always my favorite when I was a kid, and now I see her. She's the most beautiful thing I ever saw, unquote. Ugh. Yeah, which I want to add, the fact that one of, his favorite dinosaurs or at his favorite dinosaur as a kid was the triceratops. I think that's neat because um, normally that dino is seen as something that is feminine. Yeah. Yep. But it was his favorite. So that, that just kind of proves he already sort of had a feminine side, I guess, but he still misgenders the T-Rex who is a more aggressive dominant dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And Nedry misgenders the Dilophosaurus, calling her a nice boy. And that she's not as bad as her big brothers. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, so misgendering is unfortunately very common for non-binary and trans humans. And terribly, we've all done it. Yeah. But I think the problem here is that Grant and Nedry should know that the dinos are all female. At least at this point in the film. Right. Exactly. And yet they still purposefully misgender them. Mm. Yeah. I've never, I never caught that before. Yeah. That's wild. Right. And I want to talk about controlled reproduction as well. According to the essay Clever Girl, quote, the film is dense with references to the female body and more specifically controlled reproduction. Blood to create baby dinosaurs, the eggs, and the pulling up of dinosaur skirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Reproduction is forced upon upon female animals in a lab by men to make money. And they break free, resist, and make babies in their own way. <laughs> the resulting story is not just a cautionary tale of what happens when scientists and corporate interests combine, but an exploration of the threat that feminism poses to the family unit when seen through the eyes of the patriarchy, unquote. Mm, yep. And this sort of brings us to Muldoon, who is like the raptor wrangler in the film. (laughs) Oh my god, Uh, this guy is wild. (laughs) Yes. Uh, The essay Clever Girl says of him, quote, Muldoon enforces the domination of these females and and pays the price. Despite recognizing the capabilities of the raptors, he fatally underestimates their effective hunting in packs 
and thinks he can shoot the raptor who coquettishly appears in the vegetation towards the end of the film. As the second one emerges and devours him, the raptor that first caught the eye of Muldoon stares unmoved as a snake slithers past her face. This is Eve, she's back, and she's not sorry. She's perfectly happy in the garden of good and evil, unquote. She's like, I'm going to have sex and I'm going to make babies whenever I want. <laughs> I love that shot of the dinosaur because every time I see it, all I can think of is that like laughing lizard gif where he's like. <laughs> <laughs> That's her. <laughs> it is. She's like, mm, you got got. <laughs> but this sort of reminds me of how our government tries to you know, tries to control human reproduction as well. Yes. Yep. And, you know, like how we can get like free condoms really at doctor's offices, but we can't get free birth control. Exactly. It's, uh, or, you know, if you take birth control, then you're, you know, this terrible person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you don't take it, you know, then you're, then you're a terrible person. Like the, like women have so many, uh, dualities that they have to deal with yes and uh that's sort of what happens with these dinosaurs too you know like they've done this this wondrous thing with making babies on their own uh but they weren't supposed to yeah they're like oh shit you're not supposed to do that it's actually really interesting that you say that about the dualities because um that shot with like the snake and the raptor it's like millions and millions of years of evolution and like these dinosaurs come basically are like brought back to earth and they're like oh no no this is not how it works and they just like take over again and like take kind of like take back what is inherently theirs and there's like i mean there's a reason evolutionary reason why we did not grow up beside dinosaurs yeah <laughs> we would have been done for <laughs> We would we would have been the ones extinct. Exactly. Yeah. Oh dang. Well, thank God for meteors, I guess. <laughs> yes. Okay, oh, so let's talk about the the human women in this. Let's talk about Ellie and Lex and let's kind of dive into stem roles in film. Yes. Ooh, this is so good. Okay, so According to NSF.gov, there are some really interesting statistics when it comes to women in science and technology. Who would have thought? Um, well. They presented this graph that looked at the numbers of women involved in like STEM and stuff like that from 1993 all the way to 2010. So this graph is obviously a little bit old, but... As we've discussed, Jurassic Park came out in 1993, mm -hmm. so that was kind of an interesting correlation. And here's what the graph and the findings have to say. Uh, women comprised 28% of all workers in SNE occupations in 2010, up from 23% in 1993. Whoa! Yeah, so... Women have also made up half or more of all social sciences, like psychology, at least since the early 1990s. However, psychology is the only large S&E occupation with substantially more women than men. That's so, interesting. That is interesting because it's, hmm. a, it's very much a more... Um, uh, Empathetic job. Yeah. Yes, yes. And it studies a lot about human emotion and that kind of thing. 
Uh, growth among women has been strongest in the biological and related sciences. Women made up 48% of employed biological, agricultural, environmental life sciences in 2010. And the number of women employed in this occupational group more than doubled between 1993 and 2010. So that's pretty cool, too. Although the largest disparity between men and women is in engineering, women increased their presence in engineering workforce from 9% in 1993 to 13% in 2010. Good, yeah. Women's presence among computer and mathematical science scientists declined from 31% to 25% over the period, but only because men's rate of growth in this area was higher than women's. The number of women working in computer and mathematical sciences nearly doubled between 1993 and 2010. And the main finding in this gathering of data was that women with college degrees remain underrepresented in the SE occupations, although less so than in the past. Except in computer and mathematical sciences, women have increased their proportion in each broad occupational group since the early 1990s. So, wow, okay. My opinion, anyway, is that it's really safe to say that this film was way ahead of its time in making women in the film the heroes that are backed by an education in science and technology. And according to these findings, the number of women in these areas really only grew. While we still remain behind, we're catching up, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't think this film contributed at least a little bit to that growth. I agree, because, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I've read the people at NASA are there because they watched Star Trek. Yes! So I can see women seeing other women, or little girls seeing women in these roles, and being interested in you know, paleontology and hacking. Yeah, definitely. I mean, culturally, I think this movie had a big impact on women and the way that they viewed themselves in a role like Ellie and Lex. And I can't really think of another film that had as much of an impact on me personally when it came to exploring science. And being a little girl, seeing women on the screen kick ass in a way that was a game changer, like, it made me feel like these subjects were approachable and that a degree in science was attainable. I mean, when I reconnected with this film as a teen, I was like, oh my god, like, I don't have to study business or, like, be a homemaker. I could discover things and, like, save the day. Yeah, and I know I've been using resources from the Clever Girl essay a lot, yeah. but there's one part in, in this essay that I don't agree on. Uh, they mention in the article that Lex is nervous and fearful. No. Well, yeah, well, she's I a mean kid. I mean, yeah. she's a kid. She's going to be afraid of things trying to eat her. Um, but Tim is also nervous and fearful throughout the film. Maybe not always at the same things as Lex, but he's still scared of things like heights. Yeah. <laughs> like he's scared of heights in that one scene. And he's, you know, scared of getting eaten alive. And like, like you said, like Lex saves the fucking day by bringing Jurassic Park back online. Like if it wasn't for her, they would all be raptor bait. Yeah, agreed. So, and like, yeah, she screams and stuff. But like I said, like Tim screams just as much as Lex does. And he's a little boy. So I think like saying that she, because she's like super upset and nervous, like that and calling her out, like you're completely missing how her brother is the same way. No kidding. 
And also, it's like my husband says to his son all the time. You can't be brave unless you're a little bit scared. So it's like you can't have one emotion without the other. And it would be completely, like, not accurately human to, like, show this little teeny tiny girl in the face of, like, all these gigantic dinosaurs and have her be like, I'm not scared of anything. Like, if you are like that, great for you. But I I don't know many kids <laughs> who would be like, yeah, this is fine. <laughs> Exactly. And I guess, like, they, I've also read things where it's like Ellie seems afraid, and a lot of the things that Ellie sees, like, scares her and stuff. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Like, and like, maybe like Grant and Ian and Muldoon, like, they don't like scream at stuff and whatever. But like, I don't know. I just feel like Ellie makes it out. Muldoon dies because he is not smart enough to survive let's be real he dies because he does not believe that the raptors are smart enough to outwit him right even though he knows they're smart he doesn't think they're as smart as him Mm -hmm. and he loses freaking ian you know gets chased by the t-rex and he doesn't die but he gets severely injured and he has to be taken care of by ellie and john is a sexist narcissist like he says like what's that that's a famous line in the film where he's like i really should be me going and she's like why and he's like because i'm a, and you're a, and she's like we'll talk about sexism later yeah <laughs> and it's like ellie is able to do so many things that a lot of the men in this film can't do but like if you want to if you really really want to go down that route science has proven evolutionarily over and over and over again that women have a higher survival rate because they learn to take the fear that they feel of being killed and kind Mm -hmm. of like turn it into kind of a respect thing so it's Mm -hmm. like you know that you're not at the top of the food chain so you need to be careful while like sometimes male species will be like, oh, no, it's fine. I got this. Like, I'm big and bad and tough. And that's how they end up getting killed because they underestimate just like the, the guy They underestimate the, the predator. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, and I think it's interesting. Like, yeah, there are only two women in this film, which is not good, but none of them die. Right. Yes. So there's that. I mean, <laughs> not even... I mean, the the dinosaur, the raptors die at the end, but that's not because any humans kill them. That's because another female kills them, which right. is the t- T-Rex. I think that it's interesting that people don't feel like Ellie and Lex get enough credit. I think they do. I do, too. I agree. Okay, so let's talk about the use of color in Jurassic Park. There's this great YouTube video by Cosmovoid where uh, the host talks about how all of the major characters in Jurassic Park are color-coded throughout the, throughout the film. Mm-hmm. I'm going to touch on a few points that they make, but I'm also going to add a lot of my own thoughts with that as well. Uh, so let's start with Ellie. When they get to the park, Ellie is wearing a very practical outfit. She's wearing brown, brown shorts and a colorful cotton shirt. Um, I'm sure you've all noticed this, but she is wearing a pink button-up shirt over a blue tank top. Okay. Ellie is wearing both male and female gendered colors, blue and pink. Like we mentioned earlier, Ellie is one of the few women in a primarily more male-dominated job. She's still feminine and one 
could argue that her career, which also deals with plants, is also very feminine. Uh, she is also just surrounded by men. Ellie doesn't need to be a macho woman, though, in order to fit in with any of them, including her boyfriend, Alan. Mm-hmm. He knows that she's strong and smart and beautiful. She's just Ellie. But I think that it's interesting that towards the end of the film, she completely loses her pink shirt and is left with her blue tank top. Possibly showing us that she has had to shed most of her femininity in order to survive. Mm. I mean, this actually sounds a lot like what final girls do in horror. Yeah. Right? They always have some sort of weapon that resembles a penis. It's phallic. (laughs) And they have to use this phallic object in order to survive against (laughs) the phallic monster. Right. So let's like hold that thought and go to Alan. So Alan is also wearing very practical clothes, even though Ellie is showing more skin than Alan. He is wearing the same sort of quote unquote adventure gear that Ellie is. (laughs) He has brown pants on and he has colorful cotton shirts. What's interesting is that he is wearing the exact same colors as Ellie. He has a pink ascot type bandana cloth around his neck and he's also wearing a blue shirt. Now, at the end of the film, the pink bandana might be gone, but you can still kind of tell that he's wearing his blue shirt. Mm -hmm. However, the blue shirt is completely covered in pinkish mud. Why? Because in order to survive, Alan had to get in touch with his more feminine side and become maternal, like we mentioned earlier. Wow. Yep. No more scaring little kids. Now he has to protect them. And as we mentioned earlier... Alan starts off hating kids and possibly hating even the idea of settling down. Now that he has played the role of the protective mother, he seems more open to having kids by the end of the film. Even though in Jurassic Park 3, this doesn't happen, but whatever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so real quick, speaking of the kids, Lex and Tim are wearing similar colors that are comparable to Ellie and Alan. Lex is wearing mostly purple, while Tim is in a light blue and like white outfit. Mm-hmm. Again, showing that they have been color-coded as male and female. But much like Alan, their original colors are muted to this like pinkish-brown color from living in the jungle. The mm-hmm. three of them have now become a family unit and are sharing the same color. Their genders don't matter. Tim, even though he's a boy, gets into more trouble than Lex does. He's in danger way more often and needs more saving than she does throughout the entire thing she actually saves his ass a few times yes yes out of everyone in the film tim is the damsel in distress which is a role that is usually cast to young females lex who is the only little girl in the group of three is a hacker and like we mentioned earlier that role is primarily given to young males especially in film and uh, i just watched the movie war games recently and that was um men all men hackers and that and then hackers the movie is mostly men too angelina jolie's character is the only female hacker in that so i think that that's interesting that none of their genders end up mattering in order to survive yeah so they all become one color this like pink brown color okay so let's walk away from the topic of gender for a bit and talk about god and satan (laughs) or should i say john and ian Ooh. John Hammond not only acts like God, like we mentioned earlier, but he dresses like God, too. He is seen wearing all white throughout the entire film and has clear glasses on, which could kind of represent his maybe his clear vision of the park, even though it is incredibly flawed and not so. Uh, 
he even has a white beard, like the stereotypical image of God has. And Ian, on the other hand, is dressed in all black. He wears dark colored glasses and he has dark hair. He is much younger than John and more attractive. Note how he tries to like seduce Ellie away from Alan. Garden of Eden, anyone? (laughs) (laughs) He is Satan. Well, he is, according to John, he is the only member of the group that is that very quickly denounces the idea of the park. While everyone oogles over the baby raptor, Ian sees the danger before anyone else in the group does. And he isn't afraid to let John know that he thinks that this whole playing God thing is a terrible idea. John even says at one point, I really hate that man. And he's referring to Ian. (laughs) Yep. Ian, of course, is right about everything, which flips our expectations on the relationship humans have with God and the devil. The devil in this situation ends up being right and ends up being the one that tries to save everyone, where God is evil. I mean, isn't that usually the case? (laughs) For a lot of people who are are Satanists, yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's interesting that this sort of (laughs) Jurassic Park of all films is possibly a satanic movie. (laughs) It most certainly is. Are you kidding me? I mean... It's kind of funny, too, like, if you want to look at it that way, how many, um, like, quote unquote, like, godly people will deny the existence of dinosaurs. And so, mm-hmm. like, having... Yeah, they're just big dogs. Have yeah. you heard that? That's what they say. They're big dogs. Yeah. And, like, having uh, Hammond be kind of like the godly figure who is like, oh, well, they can be wielded to, like, my liking because, like... I don't know, maybe, like, if he's like, oh, I don't know if, like, everything is scientifically accurate or blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to do this because I can. And then Ian is like, no, there's actual scientific evidence that, like, you cannot exist at the same time as these dinosaurs. There is a reason why you cannot. Yes. And it's because they're dangerous. And it's that thing where, like, humans, especially very, very religious, like, people who are steeped in that belief think that humans are the top of the food chain and that we are the most powerful beings aside from God. And that's, yeah, that's what Hammond feels like. He feels like he has control over the park. He has control over the dinosaurs. Everything is going to be fine. The park will open and nothing bad will happen. And Ian from the very beginning is like, nah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's like, oh, we're fucked. (laughs) basically so let's get into our final thought the anti-capitalist message in jurassic park (laughs) yes (laughs) i love it um watching this film as like an older millennial definitely made me stop and ponder about the fact that the man behind this park and the scientists behind the disaster didn't stop to think about the consequences of their actions, much like politicians from the past and the present don't really stop to think about how their policies and economic standards would affect younger generations for decades to come. (laughs) But, like, it goes beyond just economics, too. Like, we can look at the world as a whole the way the environment and animal species are depleted, how living conditions have rapidly fallen by the wayside for many people our age 
and I mean, like, it affects everyone, but especially people our age. And how now, like, in the middle of a pandemic, we aren't getting the healthcare and funding that we need to make it through. But I found a really good article, um, and Sean T. Collins puts it perfectly in this article that he'd written for Polygon called Jurassic Park Warned Us Against the Carnivorous Capitals, (laughs) or Capitalists. And he said, quote, I owe the Jurassic Park franchise an apology. Twitter user Relentless Board wrote in a viral tweet in April, It is, in fact, very realistic the rich would reopen a park in spite of it consistently resulting in mass death. The tweet struck a nerve with the collective trapped on COVID-19 island. What kind of people would continuously send out others to risk and often lose their lives in a ravening horde of killer organisms? The kind of people who run our workplaces, own our apartment buildings, and operate our government. The kind of people who want us to rush back to work and school despite the risks in hopes of kickstarting a broken economy, even as they fail to pony up the cash we could use to stay at home, stay solvent, and stay alive. Suddenly, the forces animating the four and counting sequel to Steven Spielberg's 1993 masterpiece of suspense, Jurassic Park, feel more familiar than ever. Before spawning a monster trilogy, the spin-off franchise in the Jurassic World films, the original Jurassic Park broadcast its greed isn't good message in ways both large and small. In this, it had its obvious antecedents and the creature feature genre, from the Callus Company and its operatives in the Alien series to the beach opening mayor in Spielberg's own Jaws. This was a note the director was primed to play. Even the crudest big picture broad strokes take on Jurassic Park reveals its overt message. Science run amok, hunger for profits above concerns for safety, ambition leading a genteel but headstrong multimillionaire, John Hammond, into the creation of a slowly unfolding human dinosaur disaster. But in the era of the pandemic, it's clearer than now. Na- it's clearer than ever how deeply capitalist rapaciousness is embedded in Jurassic Park's DNA. So, dinosaurs are a great metaphor for this. Big bad reptiles that would threaten the very existence of man had we existed in the same era. And this is even talked about in the movie. And we've talked about it several times now in this episode. Like, I could get into an entire discussion about the ethics of scientific exploration and discovery, but we'll save that for another sci-fi horror film in the future. (laughs) I think the important takeaway from this film, and even from the novel too, is that we should tread carefully and lightly when it comes to making a profit off of our scientific explorations when they haven't had time to be properly like peer-reviewed or studied by experts. And... You know, when Ian says in the movie that Hammond's ideas required no discipline to apply to the development of unpredictable beasts, we can kind of liken that to politicians who have never walked a day in the life of a poor person, but still implement these policies that are devastating to the lives of millions of people who can't afford to eat or live or provide health care to their families. Or they've forgotten yeah, no kidding. Like, I mean, the line about um, 
when Ian says, you know, you were so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. Yeah, and he was saying also, like, you patent, you put a sticker on it, you patent it, and now you're trying to sell it. Yeah. I mean, I think that resonates so strongly with our generation because we've experienced firsthand what that can mean for society. Like, Mm -hmm. when only a small, teeny tiny portion of the population holds this wealth and power, it's like the rest of us are at mercy are at the mercy of whatever they want to do. Right. And, you know, as we've learned throughout this pandemic, the ones who've actually worked to develop society, like the scientists and the social workers, and even those who study the law, are ignored or destroyed in the name of making money. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so since this whole... My ranting is starting to sound like a weird manifesto. I'll... I'll, uh... (gasps) Quote the same article that I was talking about before, Um, but he says, quote, the shutdown of park security systems that leads to the escape of dinosaurs is even more rooted in filthy lucre. The majority of the animal paddocks are brought down by Dennis Nedry, the overworked and underpaid, according to him, and I for one don't doubt it, computer programmer responsible for the park's largely automated systems. Nedry is offered a bribe from a rival company to steal dinosaur embryos and sneak them off the island, a bribe that he accepts in large part because the park's owner, Hammond, has refused his request for a raise. Hammond rejects Nedry's entreaties explicitly on the grounds of the moral hazard inherent in paying Nedry more than Hammond feels he deserves. Nedry's financial problems, Hammond insists, are Nedry's financial problems. I don't blame people for their mistakes, Hammond says crossly, but I do ask they pay for them. If Hammond had been more concerned with paying people what they're worth instead of teaching them a lesson about hard work and responsibility, there'd be a few more empty velociraptor stomachs on Isla Nublar. Mm-hmm. I can't be alone in hearing in Hammond's stern voice echoes of the Republicans who are oh so concerned with high unemployment benefits encouraging people not to work. And for all the talk of how the use of amphibian DNA and the reconstructed dinosaur genome allowed some dinos to change sex in order to reproduce independently of the island's lab, money itself has a mutagenic capacity. Look no further than Gennaro, the cowardly lawyer. Initially as skittish as the investors he represents, he changes his tune about the island the minute he sees the first dinosaur and says, we're going to make a fortune with this place. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, Gennaro conjures visions of coupon days when the hoi polloi are allowed to set foot on the island's wonders. As opposed to regular days, when the park will charge the world's wealthiest people an arm and a leg to enter. The proverbial arm and leg in this case, literal arms and legs that get pulled off later in the movie. (laughs) The lawyer also turns on Ian Malcolm, despite having recruited him personally, when Malcolm proves to be the most skeptical of the three scientists present. The only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer, Hammond laments. Is it any coincidence that when the going gets tough, i.e. when the T-Rex attacks, Gennaro is the character who abandons Hammond's grandchildren to their fate and seeks refuge in a nearby bathroom while Grant and Malcolm step up to save them at considerable risk to themselves? That's Jurassic Park's opinion of bean counters, unquote. 
<laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah. So that article is friggin' fantastic. And I hope that if you're interested in this kind of stuff, you can read it because it's really, really good. And it definitely struck a nerve, especially lately with everything going on with the pandemic. Watching this movie, I was like, man, I used to enjoy this so much when I was a kid and now it just feels too real. <laughs> now it just makes you mad. Yeah. And now you're like, God damn, capitalism. <laughs> for real. Well, yeah. that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. We're already an hour into this episode. This is the longest episode we've done in a long time. Probably Wowie. since our Hellraiser episode. Oh, my God. Um, So I guess I just want to say, like, we Abby and I were talking before we started recording about how hard it's been. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh, so I don't cry. Basically, it's just like... <laughs> Yeah, You know, this feeling of isolation, it's been almost a year since we've all been quarantined. And, you know, Abby is pregnant and mm. I have an almost one-year-old and it's just been hard. It's been difficult. It's been difficult to be isolated and alone and not able to join mommy groups. It's, you know, and I know like Abby, like you just want to like go get something fresh to eat or maybe go to like a pregnancy (laughs) yoga class and stuff and meet other moms to be. And that's how I feel with my son. Like I just want to just meet other moms and stuff. And you just can't, you just can't because it's dangerous. Yep. Not just for you, but for other people. Mm -hmm. And it's tiring and it's tiring and it's upsetting. So uh, we came to this conclusion, or I came to this conclusion at the end of our conversation before we started recording, that the podcast has really helped me, like, have something to look forward to. Mm -hmm. Something that I have control over. Because it doesn't require me to go out. It doesn't require me to wear a mask. It doesn't require me to really do anything that involves, you know, something with COVID. Yeah. It's something that I have control over. It's something that I can think about and it's fun. Yeah. And I think that um you know, we're really lucky that we have this to look forward to and I think that's my sugar cube this this week is the fact that I have this podcast and that we've been doing it for so long still. Yeah. And um you know, it's just grown really. So Yeah. I think I would have to agree. I think we'd probably just have the same thing this week. <laughs> yeah. Because there's not much else that's <laughs> been going <yeah>. right. <laughs> you know, I mean, even our, our capital was attacked by domestic terrorists. And I mean, I, when we recorded Bit, that was before that happened. And I actually cut out the part in that episode where <laughs> we were like, yay, yeah, we're like, 2021. Yay. Instead, I kept in, instead, I kept in Abby saying, oh, my fuck. Because I thought, yeah, that's true. Like, that is, that's how you feel about the old, <laughs> you feel bad. About 2021 has not been off to a good start. No. And um, I think that, yeah, having this show has been really great. And meeting all of you online, because I haven't met a lot of the people who listen to the show in person. Because uh, we can't. Every, because we can't anyway. Yeah. But meeting a lot of the people who love the show, who support the show. And um, that's been like a real blessing. Yeah. Hashtag blessed. Yes, for sure. 
Well, thank you all for listening to this week's episode. If you like what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard in this show without any help from any researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. If Patreon isn't your deal, and that's okay, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you right to our shop. Yes, and we know times are extremely tough right now, so a free way to help the show is following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show, please. Yes, and don't forget, Black Lives Still Matter, Trans Lives Still Matter. So check out our show notes and how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. <laughs>